George, we're gonna be married. You too? Yeah. Won't we be some pair? You'll be beauts. Well, we don't know any ministers, George, and that's where you come in. You know any? Oh, I see. You're gonna get married tonight, huh? Right away. But aren't you neglecting your business? I thought that... No, George. We're gonna get married and, and then make a fortune. How about a nice little nap first in my office? Oh, you're always trying to put us to sleep, George. George, all we're asking you to do is get us a minister. And, darling, we want George for our best man. Isn't he our best friend? He's the best we'll ever have. You can fix everything, can't you, George? They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Multipass. You know this multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast to film in film history. And this is episode 75. I'm your host, Jeffrey Kelly, an old man from the Midwest. The idea of this podcast is to force me to watch films I wouldn't normally watch. And for that, I depend on the listener. So next time you see one of those really bizarre movies that cause you to say, what the hell was that about? (laughs) Keep me in mind, all right? I'll have information on how you can reach me at the end of today's show. So, for this show, I thought I'd found a film I had never seen before. The 1939 film Lucky Night, starring Robert Taylor and Myrna Loy. And incidentally, this is my first experience of getting into a situation like this. I have to admit something. I picked today's film because I came across it on Turner Classic Movies On Demand. I was just flipping around and saw there was a Myrna Loy film that I hadn't seen before. And I thought, okay, I'll do that for the show. But as I watched it, I realized, hey, I remember this. I had seen it before. I didn't remember a lot about it, but bits of it seemed familiar. So anyway, I'm still going to talk about it. But I'll let you know now, I didn't think it was a very good film. Not one of Myrna Loy's best. But between her and the charm of Robert Taylor, it's worth a viewing. I'll get more into the plot a bit later. What this film really does, it lets me talk about Myrna Loy. From her days playing bit parts and ethnic stereotypes to becoming one of the highest paid actresses in Hollywood. Her career lasted from 1925 to 1992 with 143 acting credits before she retired at the age of 77. One thing about her that I really love is the way she talks, her voice. It's just amazing. I'll make a grab at it. Obviously, there's no excitement. They don't stand on the bridge of a ship adventuring somewhere. They don't take my breath away. I can even outdrink them. Anyway, Myrna Loy was born Myrna Adele Williams and lived from 1905 to 1993. With her family, mom, dad, and brother, she lived on a ranch in Raidersburg, Montana. Her father was David Williams, a banker, real estate developer, and the youngest person ever elected to the Montana State Legislature. The family moved to Helena, Montana when she was about seven. At age 12, Myrna Williams made her stage debut at Helena's Old Marlowe Theater. When her father sadly died of influenza, 
mother moved the family to Los Angeles, and that's where Myrna caught the acting bug when she was attending the exclusive Westlake School for Girls. She appeared in local stage productions in order to help support her family. She was a good student with high grades, and teachers remembered her as quiet, unassuming, talented, and lovable. Her first claim to fame was when she posed for a Venice High School sculpture in 1921. Teacher Harry Felding Weinsbrenner used her for the central figure inspiration in his allegorical sculpture group, Foundation of Education. The statue was of her slender figure with an uplifted face and one arm extending skyward, representing a vision of purity, grace, youthful vigor, and aspiration. The sculpture stood in front of the campus outdoor pool and stayed there for decades. The family, though, was having money problems, so she left school at age 18 and began acting at Grumman's Egyptian Theater, often performing in elaborate musical sequences. Around that time, she saw a play called Thy Will Be Done, starring Eleonora Duze. She was so taken by her simple acting technique that she tried to emulate her through the rest of her career. Now, I have read two different stories about her discovery. The first is that Mrs. Rudolph Valentino saw Myrna at Grumman's. But I've also read that it was Rudolph Valentino himself that saw photographs of her by portrait photographer Harry Waxman. But the bottom line is Valentino had her test for a role in the 1925 film Cobra. And while she didn't get that part, she was soon hired as an extra for the film Pretty Ladies. She was one of the many chorus girls dangling from an elaborate chandelier. One of the other girls was none other than Joan Crawford. This led to a minor but showy role in the silent film What Price Beauty in 1925. Strangely, however, the film wouldn't be released for three years, but images of Loy in her exotic makeup and costume appeared in a fan magazine. And that's what led to a contract with Warner Brothers. Jack Warner offered her a long-term contract. She wrote in her autobiography, They signed me on July 15, 1925 for seven years, starting at $75 a week. Every six months, if I was still delivering, they renewed it and added $25. It was exploitive, of course, slave labor, but it seemed like a big chance at a lot of money to me. It was also at this point in her career that she changed her name from Williams to Loy. The story goes that screenwriter Peter Urich came up with the name, and it may have been inspired by the name of the British poet Mina Loy. She worked a lot at Warner Brothers, often playing in one film and quickly jumping into another. Many of these roles were vampish, often being Asian or Eurasian. One of these was the depraved, sadistic daughter of the title character in The Mask of Fu Manchu from 1932, a film which starred Boris Karloff. It took Myrna years to overcome playing these stereotypes. She talked about those early days in her autobiography. She wrote, They worked us to death. You'd go from one picture to another without rehearsal, often not knowing what part you would be from scene to scene. They would hand you your afternoon lines in the commissary to learn over lunch. These so-called moguls used us terribly. We were little more than chattel, really, but it was a valuable experience. You didn't need acting school. You learned on the job. And if they decided to build you, they built you to last.
For a while, she began appearing in musicals before being cast in the film, which really turned things around. It was a story based on the 1934 novel by Dashiell Hammett. It was called The Thin Man. The story goes that the director of the film, W.S. Van Dyke, had pushed her into a swimming pool during a party to judge her reaction. She handled it so well, he knew she was right for the part. It was exactly what he envisioned for Nora Charles. The problem was, Louis B. Mayer was against her playing the part because he felt she was a dramatic actress. I've also read that he didn't want William Powell to play Nick Charles as he thought he was too old, being 42 and Lloyd being 29. But it all worked out and The Thin Man was one of the most successful films of the year. William Powell said of working with Loy, When we did a scene together, we forgot about technique, camera angles, and microphones. We weren't acting. We were just two people in perfect harmony. Myrna, unlike some of the actresses who think only of themselves, has the happy faculty of being able to listen while the other fellow says his lines. She has the give and take of acting that really brings out the best. The film changed Myrna Loy's career as she began being cast in comedies, including five Thin Man sequels and 13 films with William Powell. So five years later, she did the movie that we're talking about today, Lucky Night. What did she think of this film? She said, A lame bit of whimsy called Lucky Night was co-written by Vincent Lawrence, who, strangely enough, did so well with Test Pilot. The studio thought it would be a good idea to team me up with Robert Taylor, Metro's reigning heartthrob. Our first day on the set, I played records, which we did sometimes to fill those endless waits between shots. I was listening to some wonderful Cuban music when Robert Taylor approached. Do you have to play that sexy stuff all the time? It's the dirtiest music I ever heard. That was my first day with him, and I thought, oh, brother. She had more to say about her co-star. She said, he was a bit stiffy, but we got along all right. During the picture, that is. Later on, I didn't get along with him. He became one of those tattletales, one of those guys who named innocent names to the House of Un-American Activities in 1947. Come to think of it, he acted somewhat devious on Lucky Night. He was engaged to Barbara Stanwyck, who I always liked, but for some reason he tried to cool up a little triangle. He wanted her to think I was after him. Barbara's maid mentioned this to Teresa, who I assured her that nothing could have been farther from the truth. I'm not sure if Barbara believed her because on the last day of shooting, she came by limousine and whisked him off to be married. Robert Taylor was born Spangler Arlington Bro, B-R-U-G-H, and lived from 1911 to 1969. I just got married, Mr. Carpenter, and I want to get into something that appeals to me, and selling paint does. I feel that I can sell it right and left. It's a cinch. He was an only child who grew up in Finley, Nebraska. In high school, he played cello and was a track and field star. Eventually, he went to school at Pannona College in Claremont, California, where he joined the Campus Theater Company. It was during a 1932 production of Journey's End that he got the attention of an MGM talent scout. That led to a seven-year contract. Of course, they quickly changed his name. I guess Spangler Arlington Bro didn't sound quite right. Robert Taylor was a bit better. His first role was in the 1934 comedy Handy Andy alongside Will Rogers. 
he became known as the man with the perfect profile. And his career lasted a long time, until 1968. And Myrna Loy was right. In 1947, Taylor was called to testify before the House Committee on Un-American Activities regarding communism in Hollywood. He said that he was reluctant to do so at first, but eventually he did, and he testified, It seems to me at meetings, especially meetings of the general membership of the Guild, that there were always certain groups of actors and actresses whose every action would indicate to me that, if they are not communists, they are working awfully hard to be communists. Two people he mentioned were Karen Morley and Howard De Silva, saying they were troublemakers at SAG meetings. De Silva was blacklisted on Broadway and New York radio, and Morley never worked again after her name surfaced at the hearings. From that point on, Taylor refused to work with anyone who was suspected of being a communist. He said, I'm afraid it would have to be him or me because life is too short to be around people who annoy me as much as these fellow travelers and communists do. Though I have to admit, he is charming in this movie. He almost has a Jimmy Stewart-like quality. He's funny, irreverent, and, and appealing. Though Lucky Night is not one of Myrna Loy's best films. In fact, at the beginning, I got the feeling that she was just going through the motions. What is it, Cora? I can't make it. I'm sorry, Joe. I just don't love you at all. Wasn't even close, huh? I thought so this time. Well, this time I've, I've got my walking papers for good. Again, I'm a huge fan of Loy, but I didn't think she was giving it her all in this movie. It's a story of Cora Jordan, played by Loy, who's the daughter of H. Calvin Jordan, played by Harry O'Neill, who was a rich bridge builder. After she dumps her fiancé, she tries to make it on her own without her father's money or name. I see. What would I do first? First, if I were you, I'd get a job somewhere. A job? I would. I'd live alone, Cora. I'd live in the crossroads. Yes, of course. All right, I'll get you a job. What do you think you'd like to do? Oh, no, Father. No. <laughs> You mustn't have anything to do with this at all. Oh, but you can't just go out and starve. I won't starve. Don't tell me I can't get a job. Now, listen, Cora, there are a lot of people out listen there... Listen to me. Father, am I excited? Not only will I find my own job and not live here anymore, but you're not even my father. I never heard of you, and I mean it. After trying and trying to get a job and failing to do so, Defeated in the evening, she sits on a park bench, and that's where she meets Robert Taylor as William Bill Overton. Remarkably, he is homeless and also unable to find a job. Yet for some reason, he's clean-shaven and wearing a beautiful three-piece suit. <laughs> Good for him. Got a cigarette? Oh. No, I haven't. And there are lots of other benches around here. Uh, darling, I'm not trying to pick you up. I'm too tired to move. Anyway, they're both hungry and don't have any money, but they find a policeman who gives them 50 cents. That was quite a bit of money back then. That's enough in 1939 to get two meals. But unknown to them, Bill accidentally dropped the coin on their way to the diner, so after they eat, they have no money to pay the bill. Hey, you didn't give me that money, did you? Sure I did. Don't tell me... I gave it to you as we were crossing the street, don't you remember? Yeah, and I must have been crazy to take it. I couldn't hang on to a piece of change if... Oh, I haven't got it. Well, how could you lose it? 
You don't know me. I haven't got it. Any more ideas? Cora steals a tip left by another customer and puts it in a slot machine. And what a surprise. She wins. That begins the couple's lucky night. They go on a gambling spree, always winning, including a raffle in which they won a brand new car. There's a bit of a side plot with them trying to get enough money so Bill can pay back a loan or something. But the bottom line is, they get drunk and find themselves married in the morning. And incidentally, this is my first experience of getting into a situation like this. Why? I could apologize a lot better if I had any idea how we got here. That's all right, my friend. I probably had as much to do with it as you. Now, against her father's wishes, they decide to give the marriage a go. And that's without the use of her father's money. Bill gets a job selling paint, and they begin living in a small apartment. Now, here's the problem with the film. The real drama begins when Bill decides he wants more excitement in his life, so he leaves her. But this happens with only 20 minutes left in the film. You don't buy the idea. Buy it. The very word, the word even, that awful word, idea, 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 all day long. Do you know what you look like when you say it? Like a foolish fellow with as much character as a lamppost. A lamppost fits it perfectly, Bill. It's very imposing when it's lit at night, but when it's daytime, it just goes out and looks like a silly lamppost. And I'm going to spoil the end for you, so if you don't want to hear it, turn it off now. His independence doesn't last long as he gets drunk and goes back to Cora. Actually, he arrives at her father's home... And her father and Bill get drunk. A one. A two. And Cora finds him sleeping in her bed in the morning. The two make up and apparently live a happy life from then on. Or so Hollywood would make you believe. What are you doing out with Joe last night? Don't you wish you knew? Eating my heart out for you, with no idea of where to start looking for you tomorrow. And then I come home and find you right in my own bed. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So the first third of the film is the two meeting, getting drunk, and getting married. In my opinion, that should have been a lot shorter. We didn't need the whole subplot of the loan or whatever was going on that had nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but I'm, you know, whatever. In the second third or a little more than a third, is them trying to make a life for themselves as man and wife and dealing with all the financial problems that goes along with it. And it's not till we get to the last 20 minutes that the real conflict of the film, which should have been more, finally happens. And that doesn't last long. How you feeling? Great. Yeah, why you feeling great? Sure. Hi. Because I'm feeling great. No, you're not feeling great because you're feeling great. You're feeling great because you are great. Oh, I'm glad I'm great. That's got nothing to do with it. You'd be great if you was glad I wasn't. Well, I'm still I'm glad I'm great. All right, what's the use in arguing? I'm not arguing with you, Bill. Let it go, let it go. I think you're great, too. Don't apologize. I think you're greater than I'm great. Here's where the cards come into play. To wit. Every card I get over 10 is worth a cool million. 
But if I don't get over ten, I must surrender myself to the scientists on yonder mountain, where I'll be slowly cut to pieces, studying prolonging life for the sake of the animals. Well? For uh, my favorite scene, it, it would be hard to pick one. There isn't really much that just stands out. Though I think I'd pick the montages. Like when Cora's looking for a job and we see all the closed and no jobs available sign as she walks defeated. And later on when they're gambling, there's a whole montage of Cora and Bill winning a lot of money. That type of thing. It's 50 cents worth, buddy. All red. What's the matter with blue? The lady says red. All right, keep your shirt on. We intend to. Shine, lucky star. Best down now. You can't win unless you bet. Everybody ready? Everybody down? Here we go. All right, folks, get your best It's so perfectly the late 30s, early 40s. In fact, most of this movie seems that way. Like, if somebody made it now, it would be a good parody of films back then, if that makes any sense. The director of the film was Norman Torig. He was an American film director and screenwriter from 1920 to 1968. He directed 180 films. Some of his best-known work were Boys Town in 38, Little Nellie Kelly from 1940, The Caddy from 1953, and then a bunch of Elvis movies in the 1960s. In 1931, he received an Academy Award for Best Director for Skippy, and in 1939, he was nominated for the same award for his film Boys Town. Now, I'm not going to talk about any of the other actors, really. I mean, for the most part, Loy and Taylor are the only two actors in the movie. The rest just come and go. The only other actor I will mention is Charles Lane. Well, let me tell you this, Mr. Overton. No wonder you never made good. In business, you can't afford to feel superior to your position. And you would be. No, you have no chance. What? Lane is wonderful. He always is. He's one of those actors who always seemed old, even when he was young. I don't think I've ever seen him in something where he didn't look like an old man. He lived from 1905 to 2007 and has 379 acting credits. One of his last was the remake of Computer War Tennis Shoes from 1995. And to be honest, I didn't even know they remade that movie. The biggest problem with this film is what's the point? It's almost if the makers didn't quite know what they wanted to do with this film. It's just one scene after another without really going anywhere. It doesn't matter to me, Eddie. I hate to have to say that, but I don't care at all. And everything you say here, I can't believe it's you. Fun. Is that what you call fun? And as for gallant gentlemen, a man picks you up in the street and marries you, and that's gallant? Until, like I said, the last 20 minutes. I mean, there's no sense that Bill has any problem with the marriage situation until moments before he decides to leave. And that doesn't last very long. I almost feel that they just wrote a bunch of charming, delightful scenes and got to a point they said, well, how are we going to end this? What if he leaves and comes back? That'll be an ending. But all in all, I enjoyed watching the film, even though it's just an average or probably below average film, even for its day. I was looking through old newspapers, looking for reviews, and I found this one from 1939 by Reed Porter. He wrote, 
No movie in motion picture history has ever been so grossly or unjustly mangled as Lucky Night. In dozens of trade journals, exhibitor papers, and fan publications which reach my desk, there has not been one word of praise written on this amazingly warm and human picture. So at least someone liked it. Anyway, time to find out what others thought of it, and for that I'm going to turn to IMDb. A refreshing story about the ups and downs of romance, wrote ISDA803812, who gave it all 10 stars. He or she went on to say, I was totally surprised by this film. Based on other reviews, I thought it would be tedious, but I thoroughly appreciated Lois Cora. She wanted to be her own person, at least at the beginning of the film. By chance she meets Bill Overton, Robert Taylor. Taylor is great in this film, doing one of his best Peter Pan roles. These two look marvelous together and have a lot of fun together. However, the real story begins following their commitment to one another. Unlike most Hollywood films where the romantic relationship is based on a mutual attraction, the couple gives us an insight into the day-to-day -day reality of life and their discovery about who each of them is. The ending was poorly done, but there's a message to be taken from this film. Free 101 Girl 12 thought it only deserved 6 stars and had this to say. The first part is a hoot. Lucky Knight gets off to a roaring start with Loy and Taylor tearing up the town and obviously having a ball together. Their great chemistry and the situation they get themselves into are a lot of fun to watch. For a while I was really thinking this movie was going to turn out to be an underrated and little known gem. Unfortunately, when the pair sober up the next morning, the story goes off the rails and becomes a dreary, incoherent mess. Taylor's character keeps rambling on about how he has some idea about what life should be, but he can't articulate what he means. The dialogue actually becomes so bizarre at times that I wondered if the writer was all there. This one is worth checking out if you're a fan of Loy. She's always a pleasure to watch. But if you start getting antsy halfway through, change the channel. You won't be missing anything. Only four stars was what Michelle86614 thought. And she wrote, Script fails the stars. This comedy has about 15 minutes of charming banter between Mira Loy and Robert Taylor. For a time, she displays some of the same light-hearted romping spirit that made her famous in the Thin Man movies. But the plot, which is silly to begin with, Harris decides to make it on her own, leaves wealthy home, meets a bum and they gamble and sweet-talk their way into great fun, takes a somewhat dramatic, is that all there is, turn at the end. Actually, for 1939, the script identifies a pretty mature marital conflict. She longs for security and he longs for spontaneous, irresponsible thrills that made them fall in love in the first place. How do you compromise? Well, after raising the question, the movie sure doesn't tell us. Should have stuck to the levity and lunacy. Still, if you're a fan of Taylor or Loy, it's worth 90 minutes of your time. And strangely, four stars was its lowest rating on IMDb. I think that's because everybody loves Myrna Loy, and only Loy fans would watch this film. So I guess I'll read one more review. Vincent Lynch-MoonOI6 wrote, Ode to Irresponsibility. Sometimes I don't like a film, but this film annoys me. I guess I have a tendency to like people who are responsible. And the two main characters here, played by Robert Taylor and Myrna Loy, 
It all begins when the two run into each other and go on an evening fling where every bit of gambling they do brings in more money. So, egged on by Taylor's character, they get married, in part due to alcohol, and plan to live a life based on doing as little work as possible and having as many goings on a lark days and nights as possible. Of course, they need a place to live, and to have that, Taylor needs a job, so he becomes a very successful paint salesman. At various times, it's difficult to tell which character is more irresponsible, but ultimately, Lloyd becomes the one yearning for a home and some stability. The biggest problem of this whole film is that when it ends, suddenly, we're not sure if the couple is going to go Lloyd's way or Taylor's way. At that point, I felt I wasted my time watching this movie. Now, as far as the music, it's of its time. And that was something I loved about it. It opens with such a typical opening of films of the day. With music that could have been used in a hundred movies from the period. It was by Franz Waxman, a German-born composer and conductor. His film scores include the Bride of Frankenstein, Rebecca, Sunset Boulevard, A Place in the Sun, Stalag 17, Rear Window, Peyton Place, and The Nun's Story. He has received 12 Academy Award nominations and won two Oscars in consecutive years for Sunset Boulevard and A Place in the Sun. In fact, he has 176 IMDb credits. So Mr. Franz Waxman is pretty damn accomplished. So the bottom line is, like the others have said, this is a very lighthearted movie, but there's really nothing special about it, but worth a watch if you love either Loy or Taylor. There's something out there. It lives out in those woods. In the dark. Something that's come back from the dead. Before I go, if you want to see Myrna Loy at her best, check out the Thin Man films, especially the first two. I believe it was only the first two that were written by the husband and wife team of Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich. After that, with other writers coming in, I, I thought the, the witty banter that they were so famous for in those first two films went downhill. It just wasn't as sharp. And, and they had a son which sort of took away from their carefree, drunken lifestyle that was so charming in the first films. Anyway, that's just my opinion. You know, from now on, I think I'm going to release my shows on Wednesday. I think that works better for me. Trying to get them done by Monday, especially over the summer with so much going on, just doesn't work. I hope that's, o- I hope that's okay for you out there. I mean... If it's not, we'll just skip it on Wednesday, download it on Monday, and you'll be okay. So if you've got any thoughts on this film, Lucky Night, or anything else, you can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. And you can email me for any reason, even just to say hi. 
I also have a Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And I have an X page. I'm going to still call it Twitter. I've got a Twitter page called Celluloid underscore Days. You can follow me there if you would like. So next week, I'm going to talk about Evil Dead 2. Actually, I'm probably going to talk about the original Evil Dead as well, and probably Army of Darkness. So, but the main focus will be Evil Dead 2, one of, the, one of my favorite uh, horror comedy films. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I thank you for listening. I'll be back next Wednesday. So long. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.